0: Chapter Ten, of the Wailing Asteroid, by Murray Leinster. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Wailing Asteroid, Chapter Ten. The star Saul was as bright as Sirius, but no brighter, because it was nearly half a light year away, and of course could not compare in intrinsic brightness with that farther giant sun. The Milky Way glowed coldly all the stars shone without any wavering in their light, from the brightest to the faintest tinted dot. The universe was round. There were stars above and below and before and behind and to the right and left. There was nothing which was solid, and nothing which was opaque. There were only infinitely remote, unwinking motes of light, but there were thousands of millions of them. Everywhere there were infinitesimal shinings of red and blue and yellow and green, of all the colors that could be imagined yet all the starlight from all the cosmos added up to no more than darkness the whitest of objects would not shine except faintly dimly feebly there was no warmth this was deep space frigid beyond imagining desolate beyond thinking empty it was nothingness spread out in the light of many stars in such cold and darkness It would seem that nothing could be, and there was nothing to be seen. But now and again a pattern of stars quivered a little. It contracted a trace and then returned to its original appearance. The disturbance of the star patterns moved, as a disturbance in vast curved courses. They were like isolated ripplings in space. There seemed no cause for these ripplings. But there were powerful gravitational fields in the void, so powerful as to warp space and bend the starlight passing through them. These gravity fields moved with an incredible speed. There were ten of them, circling in a complex pattern which was spread out as an invisible unit which moved faster than the light their space-twisting violence distorted. They seemed absolutely undetectable, because even such minute light ripplings as they made were left behind them. The ten ships which created these monstrous force-fields were unbelievably small. They were no larger than cargo-ships on the oceans of one planet in the solar system toward which they sped. They were less than dust-particles in infinity. They would travel for only a few more days now and then would flash through the solar system which was their target. They should reach its outermost planet, four light-hours away. And within eight minutes more, swing mockingly past and through the inner worlds and the sun. They would cross the plane of the ecliptic at nearly a right angle, and they should leave the planets and the yellow star Sol in flaming self-destruction behind them. Then they would flee onward, faster than the chaos they created could follow. The living creatures on the world to be destroyed would have no warning. One instant, everything would be as it had always been. The next the ground would rise and froth out flames, and more than two thousand million human beings would hardly know that anything had occurred before they were destroyed. There was no purpose to be served by notifying the world that it was to die. The rulers of the nations had decided that it was kinder to let men and women look at each other and rejoice, thinking they had all their lives before them. It was kinder that children should be let to play valorously and babies wail and instantly be tended. It was better for humanity to move unknowingly under blue and sunshine-filled skies than that they should gaze despairingly up at white clouds or instill deeper horror at the shining night stars, from which devastation would presently come. In the one place where there was foreknowledge, no attention at all was paid to the coming doom. Burke went raging about brightly lighted corridors, shouting horrible things. He cried out to Sandy to answer him, and defied whatever might have seized her to dare to face him. He challenged the cold stone walls. He raged up and down the gallery in which she had vanished, and feverishly explored beyond it, and returned to the place where she had disappeared, and pounded on solid rock to see if there could be some secret doorway through which she had been abducted. It seemed that his heart must stop for pure anguish. He knew such an agony of frustration as he had never known before. Presently method developed in his searching. Whatever had happened, it must have been close to the tall archway with the large metal plate in its floor and the brilliant lights overhead. Sandy could not have been more than twenty feet from him when she was seized. When he heard her gasp he was at this spot, exactly this spot. He'd whirled and she was gone she could not have been farther than the door beyond the archway or else the one facing it. He went into the most probable one. It was a perfectly commonplace storage room. He'd seen hundreds of them. It was empty. He examined it with a desperate intentness. His hands shook, his whole body was taut. He moved jerkily. Nothing. He crossed the corridor and examined the room opposite. There was a bit of dust in one corner he bent stiffly and fingered it. Nothing. He came out, and there was the tall archway, brightly lighted. The other compartments had no light-tubes. Being for storage only, they would not need to be lighted except to be filled and emptied of whatever they should contain. But the archway was very brilliantly lighted. He went into it, his hand weapon shaking with the tension in him. There was the metal plate on the floor. It was large, yards in extent. He began a circuit of the walls. Halfway around he realized that the walls were masonry. Not native rock like every other place in the fortress. This wall had been made." He stared about. On the opposite wall there was a small thing with a handle on it, to be moved up or down. It was a round metal disk with a handle, set in the masonry. He flung himself across the room to examine it. He was filled with terror for Sandy, which would turn into more than murderous fury if he found her harmed. The metal floor-plate lay between. He stepped obliviously on the plate. The universe dissolved around him. The brightly lit masonry wall became vague and misty. Simultaneously, quite other things appeared mistily, then solidified. He was abruptly in the open air, with a collapsed and ruined structure about and behind him. This was not emptiness, but the surface of a world. Over his head there was a sunset sky. Before him there was grass, and beyond that a horizon. And to his left there was collapsed stonework, and far off ahead there was a hill which he knew was not a natural hill at all. There was a moon in the sky, a half-moon with markings that he remembered. There were trees, too and they were trees with long, ribbony leaves such as never grew on earth. He stood frozen for long instants, and a second, smaller moon came up rapidly over the horizon and travelled swiftly across the sky. It was jagged and irregular in shape. Then flutings came from somewhere to his rear. They were utterly familiar sounds. They had distinctive pitch, which varied from one to another and they were of different durations, like half-notes and quarter-notes in music. And they had a plaintive quality, which could have been termed Elfin. All this was so completely known to him that it should have been shocking, but he was in such an agony of fear for Sandy that he could not react to it. His terror for her was breath-stopping. He held his weapon ready in his hand, he tried to call her name, but he could not speak. The long ribbony leaves of the trees waved to and fro in a gentle breeze, and then Burke saw a figure running behind the swaying foliage. He knew who it was. The relief was almost greater pain than his terror had been. It was such an emotion as Burke had experienced only feebly, even in his recurrent dream. He gave a great shout and bounded forward to meet Sandy, crying out again as he ran. Then he had his arms about her and she clung to him with that remarkable ability women have to adapt themselves to circumstances they've been hoping for, even when they come unexpectedly. He kissed her feverishly, panting incoherent things about the fear he'd felt holding her fast. Presently somebody tugged at his elbow. It was Holmes. He said, dryly, I know how you feel, Burke. I acted the same way just now. But there are things to be looked into." It'll be dark soon and we don't know how long night lasts here. Have you a match?" Pam regarded the two of them with a peculiar glint of humor in her eyes. Keller was there too, still shaken by an experience which for him had no emotional catharsis attached. Burke partly released Sandy and fumbled for his cigarette lighter. He felt singularly foolish, but Sandy showed no trace of embarrassment. There was a matter transposer she said, and we found it, and we all came through it." Keller said awkwardly, I turned on the communicator to base. It must have been a matter-transposer. I thought, in the instrument room, that it was only a communicator. Holmes moved away. He came back bearing broken sticks, which were limbs fallen from untended trees. He piled them and went back for more. In minutes he had a tiny fire and a big pile of branches to keep it up but he went back for still more. "'It works both ways,' observed Sandy, "'or something does. There must be another metal plate here to go to the fortress. That huge crazy bird I saw in the gravity generator room must have come from here. He probably stepped on the plate because it was brightly lighted, and—'You've got your pistol?' demanded Burke. The sunset sky was darkening. The larger, seemingly stationary moon floated ever so slightly nearer to the zenith. The small and jagged moon had gone on out of sight. "'I have,' said Sandy. Pam gave hers to Holmes. But that's all right. There won't be savages. Over there, beyond the trees, there's a metal railing—impossibly old and corroded. But no savage would leave metal alone. I don't think there's anybody here but us.' Burke stared at something far away that looked like a hill. There's a building, or the ruins of one. No lights, no smoke. Savages would occupy it. We're alone all right. I wonder where? We could be anywhere within a hundred or five hundred light-years from earth." Then, said Sandy comfortably, we should be safe from the enemy. No, said Burke, if the enemy has an unbeatable weapon destroying one solar system won't be enough. They'll smash every one that humanity ever used, which includes this one. They'll be here eventually. Not at once, but later. They'll come." He looked at the small fire. There were curious, familiar fragrances in the air. Over to the west the sun sank in a completely orthodox glory of red and gold. The larger moon swam serenely in the sky. I'm afraid," said Pam, that we won't eat tonight unless we can get back to the fortress and the ship. I guess we're farther from our dinners than most people ever get. Did you say five hundred light-years? Ask Keller," grunted Burke, I've got to think. Far off in the new night there was something like a bird-song, though it might come from anything at all. Much nearer there were peculiarly maternal clucking noises they sounded as if they might come from a bird with a caricature of a bill and stumpy, useless wings. There was a baying noise very far away indeed, and Burke remembered that the ancestry of dogs on earth was as much a mystery as the first appearance of mankind. There were no wild ancestors of either race. Perhaps there had been dogs with the garrison of the fortress, which might be five hundred light-years away in one sense, but could be not more than a few yards in another. Holmes squatted by the fire and built it up to brightness. Keller came back to the circle of flickering light. His forehead was creased. The constellations, he said unhappily, they're gone. Which would mean, Burke told him absently, that we're more than forty light years from home. They'd all be changed at that distance. Holmes seated himself beside Pam. They had reached an obvious understanding. Burke's eyes wandered in their direction. Holmes began to speak in a low tone and Pam smiled at him. Burke jerked his head to stare at Sandy. I think I forgot something. Should I ask you again to marry me? Or do I take it for granted that you will, if we live through this? He didn't wait for her answer. Things have changed, Sandy, he said gruffly. Mostly me. I've gotten rid of an obsession and acquired a fixation. On you." "'There,' said Sandy warmly, "'there speaks my Joseph. Yes, I'll marry you. And we will live through this. You'll figure out something, Joe. I don't know how, but you will.' "'Yes,' said Burke slowly. "'Somehow, I feel that I've got something tucked away in my head that should apply.' I need to get it out and look it over. I don't know what it is or where it came from, but I've got something." He stared into the fire, Sandy nestled confidently against him. She put her hand in his. The wind blew warm and softly through the trees. Presently Holmes replenished the fire. Burke looked up with a start as Sandy said, "'I've thought of something, Joe. Do you remember that dream of yours? I know what it was.' What? It came from a black cube, said Sandy, which was a cube that somebody from the garrison took to earth. And what kind of cube would they take? They wouldn't take drill-instruction cubes. They wouldn't take cubes telling them how to service the weapons or operate the globes or whatever else the fortress has. Do you know what they take?" He shook his head. Novels, said Sandy. Fiction stories. Adventure tales. To— experience on long winter evenings, or even asleep by a campfire. They were fighting men, Joe, those ancestors of ours. They wouldn't care about science, but they'd like a good lusty love story, or a mystery, or whatever was the equivalent of a western twenty thousand years ago. You got hold of a page in a love story, Joe?" "'Probably,' he growled. "'But if I ever dream it again, I'll know who's behind those waving branches. You.' Then, surprised, he said, "'There were flutings when I came through the matter-transposer. They've stopped.' "'They sounded when I came through, too, and when Pam and Holmes and Keller came. Do you know what I think they are?' Sandy smiled up at him. "'You have arrived on the planet Sanda. Surface travel facilities to the left, banking service and baggage to the right, tourist accommodations and information straight ahead.' "'We may never know, Joe, but it could be that.' He made an inarticulate sound and stared at the fire again. She fell silent. Soon Keller was dozing. Holmes strode away and came back dragging leafy branches. He made a crude lean-to for Pam to reflect back the warmth of the fire upon her. She curled up, smiled at him, and went confidently to sleep. A long time later Sandy found herself yawning. She slipped her fingers from Burke's hand and settled down beside Pam. Burke seemed not to notice. He was busy. He thought very carefully, running through the information he'd received from the black cubes. He carefully refrained from thinking of the desperate necessity for a solution to the problem of the enemy. If it was to be solved, it would be by a mind working without strain, just as a word that eludes the memory is best recalled when one no longer struggles to remember it. Twice during the darkness Holmes regarded the blackness about them with suspicion, his hand on the small weapon Pam had passed to him. But nothing happened. There were sounds like bird calls and sounds like those of insects, and wind in the trees, but there was nothing else. When grey first showed in the east, Burke shook himself. The jagged small moon rose hurriedly and floated across the sky. "'Holmes,' said Burke reflectively. I think I've got what we want. You know how artificial gravity's made, what the circuit is like." To anybody but Holmes and Keller the comment would have seemed idiotic. It would have seemed insane even to them, not too long before. But Holmes nodded. Yes, of course. Why? There's a chooser circuit in the globes, said Burke carefully, that picks up radiation from an enemy ship, and multiplies it enormously and beams it back the circuit that made the radiation to begin with has to be resonant to it, as the globe burns it out while dashing down its own beam." "'Naturally,' said Holmes. What about it?" "'The point is,' said Burke, that one could treat a suddenly increasing gravity field as radiation. Not a stationary one, of course, but one that increased fast. Like the gravity fields of the enemy ships, moving faster than light toward our sun. Hmm," said Holmes. Yes, that could be done. But hitting something that's traveling faster than light— They're traveling in a straight line, said Burke, except for orbiting around each other every few hours. There's no faster-than-light angular velocity, just straight-line velocity. And with the artificial mass they've got, they couldn't conceivably dodge if we got some globes tricked up to throw a beam of gravity field back at the enemy ships, there might be resonance, and there's a chance that one might hit, too." Holmes considered. It might take half an hour to change the circuit, he observed, maybe less. There'd be no way in the world to test them. But they might work. we want a lot of them on the job, though, to give the idea a fair chance. Burke stood up, creaking a little from long immobility. "'Let's hunt for the way back to the fortress,' he said. There is a way. At least two crazy birds were marching around in the fortress corridors.' Holmes nodded again. They began a search. Matter transposed from the fortress, specifically the five of them, came out in a nearly three-walled alcove in the side of what had once been a magnificent building. Now it was filled with the trunks and stalks of trees and vines which grew out of every window-opening. There were other similar alcoves, as if other matter-transposers to other outposts or other worlds had been centred here. They were looking for one that a plump, ridiculous bird might blunder into among the broken stones. They found a metal plate partly arched over by fallen stones in the very next alcove. They hauled at the tumbled rock. Presently the way was clear. "'Come along,' called Burke, "'we've got a job to do. You girls want to fix breakfast and we want to get to work. We've a few hundred light-years to cross before we can have our coffee.' Somehow he felt no doubt whatever. The five of them walked on to the corroded metal plate together, and the sky faded and ghosts of tube lights appeared and became brilliant, and they stepped off the plate into a corridor one section removed from the sending-transposer which had translated them all, successfully, to wherever they had been. And everything proceeded matter-of-factly. The three men went to the room where the metal globes by hundreds waited for the defenders of the fortress to make use of them. They were completely practical, those globes. There were even small footholds sunk into their curving sides so a man could climb to their tops and inspect or change the apparatus within. On the way Burke explained to Keller. The globes were designed to be targets, and targets they would remain. They'd be set out in the path of the coming enemy ships, which could not vary their courses. Their circuits would be changed to treat the suddenly increasing gravitational fields as radiation, so that they would first project back a monstrous field of the same energy, and then dive down it to presumed collision with the ships. There was a distinct possibility that if enough globes could be gotten out in space, that at the least they might hit one enemy ship and so wreck the closely-orbited grouping. From that reasonable first possibility the chances grew slimmer, but the results to be hoped for increased." Keller nodded brightly. He'd used the reading helmets more than anybody else. He understood. Moreover, his mind was trained to work in just this field. When they reached the room of the many spheres he gestured for Burke and Holmes to wait. He climbed the footholds of one globe, deftly removed its top and looked inside. The conductors were three-inch bars of pure silver. He reached in and did this and that. He climbed down and motioned for Burke and Holmes to look. It took them long seconds to realize what he'd done. But with his knowledge of what could be done, Once he was told what was needed he made exactly three new contacts and the globe was transformed to Burke's new specifications. Instead of days required to modify the circuits, the three of them had a hundred of the huge round weapons changed over within an hour. Then Keller went up to the instrument room and painstakingly studied the launching system. He began the launchings while Holmes and Burke completed the change-over task. They joined him in the instrument room when the last of the metal spheres rose a foot from the stony floor of the magazine and went lurching unsteadily over to the breach of the launching-tube they hadn't noticed before. Three hundred hundred,' said Keller in a pleased tone, later. "'All going out at full acceleration to meet the enemy. And there are six observer-globes in the lot.' "'Observers,' said Burke grimly. "'That's right.' We can't observe anything because the information would come back at the speed of light. But if we lose, the enemy will arrive before we can know we've lost." Keller shook his head reproachfully. Oh no, oh no! I just understood. There are transposers of electric energy, too. Very tiny. In the observers. Burke stared. But it was only logical. If matter could be transposed instead of transmitted between distant places, Assuredly, miniature energy transposers were not impossible. The energy would no more travel than transposed matter would move. It would be transposed. The fortress would see what the observer globe saw, at the instant they saw it, no matter what the distance. Keller glanced at the ten-foot disk with its many small lights and the writhing, bright-red sparks, which were the enemy gravity-ships. There was something like a scale of distances understood now. The red sparks had been not far from the disk's edge when the first space-call went out to Earth. They were near the center when the spaceship arrived here. They were very, very near the center now. Five days,' said Burke in a hard voice. "'Where will the globes meet them?' "'They're using full acceleration,' Keller reminded him gently. hundred sixty gravities. A mile-a-second acceleration," said Burke. Somehow he was not astonished. In an hour, thirty-six hundred miles per second. In ten hours, thirty-six thousand miles per second. If they hit at that speed, they'd smash a moon. They'll cover half a billion miles in ten hours, but that's not enough. It's only a fifth of the way to Pluto. They won't be halfway to Uranus. They'll have fifty-six hours," said Keller. The need to communicate clearly made him almost articulate. Not on the plane of the ecliptic. Their course is along the line of the sun's axis. Meeting seven times Pluto's distance. Twenty billion miles. Two days and a half. If they miss, we'll know." Holmes growled. If they miss, what then? I stay here, said Keller mildly. I won't outlive everybody. I'd be lonely." Then he gave a quick, embarrassed smile. "'Breakfast must be ready. We could do nothing but wait.' But waiting was not easy. On the first day there came a flood of messages from Earth. Why had they cut off communication? Answer, answer, answer! What could be done about the enemy ships? What could be done to save lives? If a few spaceships could be completed and take off before the solar system shattered, Would the asteroid be shattered too? Could a few dozen survivors of Earth hope to make their way to the asteroid and survive there? Should the coming doom be revealed to the world?" The last question showed that the authorities of Earth were rattled. It was not a matter for Burke or Keller or Holmes to decide. They transmitted, in careful code, an exact description of the sending of the globes to try to intercept the enemy gravity ships but it was not possible for people with no experiential knowledge of artificial gravity to believe that anything so massive as a sun could be destroyed by hurling a mere ten-foot missile at it. Then there came a sudden revulsion of feeling on earth. The truth was too horrible to believe, so it was resolved not to believe it. And therefore prominent persons broke into public print denouncing Burke for having predicted the end of the world from his safe refuge in asteroid M387. They explained elaborately how he must be not only wrong, but maliciously wrong. But these denunciations were the first knowledge the public had possessed of the thing denounced. Some people instantly panicked, because some people infallibly believed the worst at all times. Some shared the indignation of the eminent characters who denounced Burke. Some were bewildered and many unstable persons vehemently urged everybody to do this or that in order to be saved. get rich artists sold tickets in non-existent spacecraft they claimed had secretly been built in anticipation of the disaster. They would accept only paper currency in small bills. What value paper money would have after the destruction of Earth was not explained, but people paid it. Astronomers swore quite truthfully that no telescope gave any sign of the alleged sun-sized masses en route to destroy Earth. Government officials heroically lied in their throats to reassure the populace, because after all one didn't want the half-civilized part of educated nations to run mad during Earth's probable last few days. And Burke and the others looked at the images sent back by the observer globes traveling with the rest. The cosmos looked to the observer-globes just about the way it did from the fortress. There were innumerable specks of light of innumerable tints and colors. There was darkness, there was cold, and there was emptiness. The globe-fleet drove on away from the sun and from that flat plain near which all the planets revolve. Every second the spheres' pace increased by one mile per second. Ten hours after Keller released them, They had covered five hundred eighty-eight thousand thousand miles, and the sun still showed as a perceptible disk. Twenty hours out, the globes had travelled two billion six hundred million miles, and the sun was the brightest star the observers could note. Thirty hours out, and the squadron of ten-foot globes had travelled five billion eight hundred thirty-odd million miles, and the sun was no longer an outstanding figure in the universe. Holmes looked fine-drawn now, and Pam was fidgety. Keller appeared to be wholly normal. And Sandy was conspicuously calm. "'I'll be glad when this is over,' she said at dinner in the ship in the lock-tunnel. "'I don't think any of you realize what this fortress and the matter-transposer and the planet it took us to. I don't believe any of you realize what such things can mean to people.' Burke waited. She smiled at him and said briskly, "'There's a vacant planet for people to move to. People occupied it once—' they can do it again. Once it had a terrific civilization. This fortress was just one of its outposts. There were plenty of other forts and other planets, and the people had sciences a way ahead of ours. And all those worlds, tamed and ready, are waiting right now for us to come and use them." Holmes said, "'Yes. What happened to the people who lived on them?' "'If you ask me,' said Sandy confidentially, "'I think they went the way of Greece and Rome.' I think they got so civilized that they got soft. They built forts instead of fighting fleets. They stopped thinking of conquests and begrudged even thinking of defenses, though they had to, after a fashion. But they thought of things like the Rhine forts of the Romans and Hadrian's Wall, like the Great Wall of China and the Maginot Line in France. When men build forts and don't build fighting fleets, they're on the way down." Burke said nothing. Holmes waited for more. "'It's my belief,' said Sandy, "'that many, many centuries ago the people who built this fort sent a spaceship off somewhere with a matter-transposer on board. They replaced its crew while it travelled on and on, and they gave it supplies and refreshed its air, and finally it arrived somewhere at the other side of the galaxy. And then the people here set up a matter-transposer and they all moved through it to the new, peaceful, lovely world they'd found all except the garrison that was left behind. The enemy would never find them there. And I think they smashed the matter-transposer that might have let the enemy follow them, or the garrison of this fort for that matter. And I think that away beyond the Milky Way there are the descendants of those people. They're soft and pretty and useless, and they've likely let their knowledge die, and there probably aren't very many of them left. And I think it's good riddance." Pam said, if we beat the enemy there'll be no excuse for wars on earth. There'll be worlds enough to take all the surplus population anybody can imagine. There'll be riches for everybody. Joe, what do you think the human race will do for you if, on top of finding new worlds for everybody, you cap it by defeating the enemy with the globes?" I think, said Burke, that most people will dislike me very much. I'll be in the history books, but I'll be in small print. People who can realize they're obligated will resent it, and those who can't will think I got famous in a disreputable fashion. In fact, if we go back to Earth, I'll probably have to fight to keep from going bankrupt. If I manage to get enough money for a living, it'll be by having somebody ghost write a book for me about our journey here." Keller interrupted mildly. It's nearly time. We should watch. Holmes stood up jerkily. Pam and Sandy rose almost reluctantly. They went out of the ship and through the metal door with rounded corners. They went along the long corridor with a seeming river of light tubes in its ceiling. They passed the doorway of the great room which had held the globes. It looked singularly empty now. On the next level they passed the mess halls and bunk rooms, and on the third the batteries of grisly weapons which could hurl enormous charges of electricity at a chosen target, if the target could be ranged. They went on up into the instrument room by the final flight of stairs. They settled down there. That is, they did not leave. But far too much depended on the next hour or less for anybody to be truly still in either mind or body. Holmes paced jerkily back and forth his eyes on the vision screens that now relayed what the observer-globes with the globe-fleet saw. For a long time they gazed at the emptiness of deepest space. The picture was of an all-encompassing wall of tiny flecks of light. They did not move, they did not change, they did not waver. The observer-globes reported from nothingness and they reported nothing. Except one item. There were fewer red specks of light and more blue ones. There were some which were distinctly violet. The globes had attained a velocity so close to the speed of light that no available added power could have pushed them the last fraction of one per cent faster. But they had no monstrous mass-fields to change the constants of space and let them travel more swiftly. The enemy ships did. But there was no sign of them there could be none except on such a detector as the instrument room had in its ten-foot transparent disk. Time passed and passed and passed. Finally, Burke broke the silence. Of course the globes don't have to make direct hits, we hope. If they multiply the gravity field that hits them and shoot it back hard enough, it ought to burn out the gravity generators in the ships." There was no answer. Pam watched the screens and bit nervously at her nails. Seconds went by. Minutes. Tens of minutes. I fear, said Keller, with some difficulty, that something is wrong. Perhaps I erred in adjusting the globes. If he had made a mistake, of course, the globe-fleet would be useless. It wouldn't stop the enemy. It wouldn't do anything, and in a very short time the sun and all its planets would erupt with insensate violence. And all the solar system would shatter itself to burning bits, and the enemy fleet would be speeding away faster than exploding matter could possibly follow it. Then, without warning, a tiny bluish line streaked across one of the screens. A second, a third, fourth, fifth, twentieth, fiftieth. The screens came alive with flashing streaks of blue green light. Then something blew. A sphere of violet light appeared on one of the screens. Instantly it was followed by others with such rapidity that it was impossible to tell which followed which, but there were ten of them. The silence in the instrument room was absolute. Burke tried vainly to imagine what had actually happened. The enemy fleet had been travelling at thirty times the speed of light, which was possible because of its artificial mass which changed the properties of space to permit it. And then the generators and maintainers of that artificial mass blew out the ship stopped so suddenly so instantly so absolutely that a millionth part of a second would have been a thousand times longer than the needed interval the energy of that enormous speed had to be dissipated the ships exploded as nothing had ever exploded before even a supernova would not detonate with such violence the substance of the enemy ships destroyed itself not merely by degenerating to raw atoms but by the atoms destroying themselves. And not merely did the atoms fly apart, but the neutrons and protons and electrons of which they were composed ceased to exist. Nothing was left but pure energy, violet light. And it vanished. Then there was nothing at all. What was left of the globe fleet went hurtling uselessly onward through space. It would go on and on and on it would reach the edge of the galaxy and go on, and perhaps in thousands of millions of years some one or two or a dozen of the surviving spheres might penetrate some star-cloud millions of millions of light-years away. In a pleased voice Keller said, "'I think everything is all right now.' And Sandy went all to pieces. She clung to Burke, weeping uncontrollably, holding herself close to him while she sobbed. On earth, of course, there was no such eccentric jubilation. It was observed that crawling red sparks in the gravity-field detectors winked out. As hours and days went by it was noticed that the solar system continued to exist, and that people stayed alive. It became evident that some part of the terror some people had felt was baseless. And naturally there was much resentment against Burke, because he had caused so many people so much agitation. Within two weeks a fleet of small plastic ships hurtled upward from the vicinity of Earth's north magnetic pole and presently steadied on course toward the fortress asteroid. Burke was informed severely that he should prepare to receive the scientists they carried. He would be expected to cooperate fully in their investigations. He grinned when Pam handed him the written sheet. "'It's outrageous!' snapped Sandy. "'It's ridiculous!' they ought to get down on their knees to you, Joe, to thank you for what you've done!" Burke shook his head. "'I don't think I'd like that. Neither would you. We'll make out, Sandy. There'll be a colony started on that world a matter-transposer links us to. It might be fun living there. What say?' Sandy grumbled, but she looked at him with soft eyes. "'I'd rather be mixed up with—what you might call pioneers,' said Burke and people with reputations to defend and announce theories that are going to turn out to be all wrong. The research in this fortress and on that planet will make some red faces on earth. And there's another thing." "'What?' asked Sandy. "'This war we've inherited without doing anything to deserve it,' said Burke. "'In fact, the enemy.' we haven't the least idea what they're like or anything at all about them, except that they go off somewhere and spend a few thousand years cooking up something lethal to throw at us. They tired out our ancestors. If they'd only known it, they won the war by default. Our ancestors moved away to let the enemy have its own way about this part of the galaxy anyhow. And judging by past performances, the enemy will just stew somewhere until they think of something more dangerous than artificial sun masses riding through our solar systems." Well, she demanded, what's to be done about that? With the right sort of people around, said Burke meditatively, we could do a little contriving of our own. And we could get a ship ready and think about looking them up and pinning their ears back in their own bailiwick, instead of waiting for them to take pot-shots at us. Sandy nodded gravely. She was a woman. She hadn't the faintest idea of ever letting Burke take off into space again, if she could help it, unless, perhaps, for one occasion when she would show herself off in a veil and a train, gloating. But it had taken the enemy a very long time to concoct this last method of attack. When the time came to take the offensive against them at least a few centuries would have passed. Five or six, anyhow. So Sandy did not protest against an idea that wouldn't result in action for some hundreds of years. Argument about Burke's share in such an enterprise could wait. So Sandy kissed him. "The End of the Whaling Asteroid" by Murray Leinster. This recording is in the public domain.